and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Laura Anderson and I'm an associate in the team and I have with me Paul Reeves, employment partner in the Stevenson Harwood International Employment Law Group. Today we will discuss the topic of whistleblowing. This has been part of our legal framework for many years, but employees are increasingly relying on it, perhaps not always in the way that the legislation had intended. In this podcast, we are going to look at the following. First of all, the background of the whistleblowing legislation. Then we'll take you through some of the basics of whistleblowing protection. So who is protected? How are they protected? What do we mean when we talk about protected disclosures? And also what we mean when we talk about the public interest test. Thirdly, we'll look at what the practical steps are that employers should take to protect whistleblowers and to deal with whistleblowing allegations. And then we'll have a look at recent case law, which has found that directors may be personally liable for whistleblowing detriments. So, Paul, let's start with some background on whistleblowing legislation. How did these laws come about and how does the law currently protect whistleblowers? The whistleblowing framework came about following various disasters in the 80s and 90s, such as the Zeebrugge ferry disaster, Clapham Junction rail crash and the Piper Alpha oil rig explosion. A common theme coming out of the inquiries into these disasters was that employees knew about the potential failings in processes and procedures, which ultimately led to these accidents, but were afraid to raise their concerns for fear of losing their jobs. This led to the implementation of the whistleblowing legislation, which now protects employees if they raise such concerns. The whistleblowing legislation protects workers who raise genuine concerns about wrongdoing by their employer. The concerns don't have to be correct or proven, as long as the worker has a genuine belief that the wrongdoing in question is taking place. The protection is to ensure that the individual is not subject to any detriment for disclosing information about an employer's alleged wrongdoing. The right includes any deliberate act or remission that the complainant regards as being a disadvantage. So this could mean a failure with regard to promotion or any impact on their pay compensation. A detriment can also include dismissal, i.e. because they have made a protected disclosure, the individual is dismissed, or disciplinary action is taken against them. If this is the case, then particularly in a dismissal, it is automatically unfair, which means the employer has no defence and the employee can bring a claim from day one of their employment without the need for two years' continuous service for ordinary unfair dismissal claims. We have had experience recently whereby an individual tried to rely on the legislation for allegedly blowing the whistle during their unsuccessful recruitment. However, the legislation is very clear that it does not protect job applicants. As in discrimination claims, there is no financial cap on the compensation that a tribunal can award for whistleblowing. This unfortunately has meant that some individuals have sought to use the whistleblowing legislation to leverage their exit arrangements, but more on that later and how the law is developed to try to stem this practice. One other point I'd raise is that unlike the US, the UK government has made a conscious decision not to offer financial rewards to individuals who raise whistleblowing concerns with the relevant authorities who may ultimately impose a fine on the employer. However, if the complainant can show that there is a US angle to their complaint, then this may enable them to claim under the US compensation scheme and receive a financial reward for blowing the whistle. Thank you, Paul. I think it's also worth adding when we talk about reporting the employer's wrongdoing that the legislation defines six relevant failures which, if reported, give the worker grounds for protection. 
So these include, broadly speaking, criminal offences or a failure to comply with legal obligations. So, for example, obligations that the employer may have to the regulator, including the FCA or the PRA, health and safety failures, as well as any deliberate concealment of any of these failures. I think it's also worth noting that the whistleblowing law protects workers, which I think you mentioned there, Paul. So agency workers, subcontractors, self-employed workers, and pretty much anyone who provides a service to an employer is included in this, albeit unfair dismissal claims on the grounds of whistleblowing detriment can only be brought by employees. So, Paul, does this mean that an individual can make a protected disclosure for their own benefit just because doing so will mean that they are protected from being subjected to a detriment? A key factor to bear in mind in any whistleblowing claim is whether the disclosure is in the public interest. Due to the perceived abuse by claimants seeking to use the whistleblowing legislation to circumvent the service requirement for unfair dismissal or the unfair dismissal cap, the government in June 2013 made a change to the law in this respect. Now, a qualifying disclosure will only be accepted if the individual reasonably believes that the disclosure is in the public interest. Now, what does in the public interest mean? Well, this is a very fact-specific test, and sadly, the recent case law appears to set the threshold at a relatively low level for the public interest test to be satisfied. This means that where on the face of it, a disclosure relates to a breach of the worker's own contract of employment or some of the matter in which the worker has a personal interest, and there are features of the case that still make it reasonable to regard it as being in the public interest, this may enable them to succeed with their claim. This is so even though it only serves the interests of the individual or a small number of people. The leading case in this area was Chesterton's, where a disclosure was made by a senior manager about the alleged manipulation of the company's accounts. He believed that such manipulation had an adverse impact on the commission income that he and approximately 100 other managers received. Now, 100 people isn't what you consider to be the public. But nevertheless, the courts held that his disclosure was in the public interest. And you can see the rationale behind that. If a company is manipulating its accounts, then that is something clearly that is in the public interest to be aware of and that steps should be taken to stop such practices. In other cases, complaints relating to the terms and conditions of employment, such as the allocation of overtime or cramped working conditions, have also been held to have the potential of being in the public interest, even though those impacted are a much smaller group of people than in the Chesterton case. When assessing what is in the public interest, a tribunal will look at some of the following factors. How many individuals' interests does the disclosure serve? What is the nature of their interests? And what is the nature of the actual wrongdoing? So I think the takeaway from that is public interest can include a very small number of people and not what you might imagine or what perhaps the government was intending to suggest in June 2013 of a larger group of people, which ultimately, if you go back to why this legislation was introduced, it was to protect the public. So... When you put it like that, the public interest test doesn't seem to have made it much more difficult for individuals to bring successful whistleblowing claims. And you can see how it's tempting for employees to try to claim that they've been subjected to detriment or dismissed as a result of making what they say is a protected disclosure. Now, that's not to say that employers cannot defend these claims by showing that the detriment in question was in fact as a result of something completely different. For example, most likely their poor performance or their misconduct as opposed to the disclosure that they have made. 
But one difficulty for employers in defending whistleblowing claims is that the claimant does not have to prove that the facts or allegations of the, or of the disclosure in question are true, as long as the claimant subjectively believes that the wrongdoing has occurred or is likely to occur, and that such a belief is objectively reasonable. Well, my advice, Laura, would be that employers should ensure that whistleblowing is promoted and encouraged so that individuals know how they can raise concerns and, for the benefit of the company, they can be informed of any alleged wrongdoing within their organisation. Naturally, you need to balance against this that individuals don't misuse the whistleblowing policies and procedures, and nor does it create a blame culture within the workplace. Companies should ensure that they have a clear and effective policy setting out how to raise complaints and how they will be dealt with. You want to encourage staff to raise concerns internally as opposed to going outside the company, for example going to the press or your regulator, to give you a chance to investigate the matter and correct any wrongdoing. You should communicate the policy to staff and provide training, especially for line managers, to ensure they know what to do if they receive a whistleblowing complaint. I'd also advise that you appoint a whistleblowing champion who will promote the whistleblowing scheme and raise awareness generally. In some sectors... A whistleblowing champion is compulsory, for example, public limited companies. But my advice would be that should not deter other employers from following a similar model. Because ultimately, you will want to know if there is any wrongdoing going on within your organisation or any of its processes and procedures. As you'll have heard us say on a number of these podcasts, line managers are the eyes and ears of an organisation. They get to see and hear what is happening on the ground much earlier and are best placed to deal with any complaints or issues before they become bigger issues or come to light possibly in a more contentious environment when an individual is being disciplined or is being exited from the company. Any formal complaints should be handled promptly and the concerns taken seriously. Now, not all complaints amount to a whistleblowing, so it's worth assessing at the outset, is this a whistleblowing complaint or is it a grievance? And then following the right process. And it's also worth notifying this to the individual so that they know which process you're going to follow. What I'd also advise is that you offer employees the right to make any whistleblowing disclosures through an anonymous hotline. This is useful because some individuals may only feel comfortable raising an issue this way. Now, I appreciate that some individuals may use that to their advantage by raising complaints anonymously when trying to cause some mischief, but on balance, having an anonymous hotline is the right way forward. If you do offer an anonymous hotline, then there should be no attempts made to try and identify the complainant. So lastly, just picking up on your point there, Paul, about ensuring managers are trained in dealing with whistleblowing claims, a case was recently handed down by the Court of Appeal in Timis versus Ozipov, which makes this even more important. The Court of Appeal held two directors were personally liable for the detriment caused by their decision to dismiss a senior executive. This means that employees can now bring parallel claims, first of all for unfair dismissal and secondly of all for detriment, both against their employer and against individual managers who make the decisions related to their employment. This is a worrying development for employers because, first of all, it paves the way to bring a detriment claim as well as an unfair dismissal claim, and the standard of proof is lower for detriment claims, which means that it is theoretically not as difficult for claimants to successfully argue that they were dismissed as a result of the protected disclosure. Second of all, there are awards for compensation of injury to feelings available in detriment claims, which are banded at different levels but which go up to a maximum of £42,700 and this award cannot be made in an unfair dismissal claim. 
So potentially higher awards for employees raising a detriment claim than an unfair dismissal claim. Third of all, on a more practical level, it can make managers reluctant to deal with disciplinary matters where there are whistleblowing or protected disclosure issues at play and where the potential sanction is a dismissal. This obviously makes it even more important to provide the necessary education and training to give managers the confidence to make decisions based on the facts that they have in front of them and not shy away from issuing a justified sanction just because there has been a whistleblowing allegation thrown into the mix by the employee, which may in fact be irrelevant. As you mentioned, Paul, when an individual does complain that they have been treated badly as a result of making what they say is a protected disclosure, all it does is make it more important for employers to objectively justify the treatment in question. This case, Laura, I think will raise grave concerns for individuals who are asked by their employer to deal with a disciplinary or maybe a redundancy or an exit, and if there is a suggestion that there is a whistleblowing allegation in the background. As a result, I would advise employers to check the directors and officers' insurance to see if this type of liability is covered. In addition, I fully expect managers or those making those types of decisions to now start to ask for an indemnity from the employer against any liability they may face for taking a decision when there is a whistleblowing angle. Thanks, Paul. I hope that's been a helpful run-through of whistleblowing legislation and things to be bearing in mind going forward when dealing with this in your organisation. Thanks for listening, and don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud, or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 